Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with your hosts Ahmed and Samar. Samar, who sometimes pronounces her name Samar when she calls me. Um, on today's program, we're going to be speaking about Islamophobia and uh, speaking to an expert on that from all the way from Berkeley, California, at the University of California, Berkeley, Dr. Hatim Bazian. Uh, maybe we'll have some time for your phone calls. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We'll be right back after the short music break. <laughs> Welcome 
back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. Um, we're live in the studio. Samar. Uh, Good to have you back. Yeah, thank you. Good to have you back. We're going to get to our... Uh, topic for the day shortly and have our guest on but uh, good to see you back in person you too Ahmed and your hair is long it's long it's, or short no it's short from the back but long uh, it's like Rin Tan Tan you know that uh, comic image I don't think guy. people re- remember that no the one that had the dog yeah okay yeah nobody <laughs> watches hair. that anymore I know but your hair is like it thank you for describing <laughs> for our audience that can't see us Uh, because this is a radio right now, and for some reason our video podcast is not working today. But um, good to be back. I know we have a lot to catch up on, but I want to get to the topic at hand. And uh, we have our special guest all the way from the University of California, Berkeley, on with us. Why don't you go ahead and introduce him somewhere? I would like to, but this music is not... Is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. You don't hear it? Oh, maybe because I don't have my um, headphones on. Okay, Why? go ahead. How come you don't have your headphone on? Yeah, if, uh, I'm okay, putting it Dr. on. Okay, Dr. Hatem, uh, I'm very pleased to say that we have with us Dr. Hatem Bazian, who's a continuing lecturer at uh, Berkeley University in California, Asian American and Asia Diaspora Studies. Dr. Hatem is uh, interested in so many different uh, topics. Uh, he writes about Arab and Arab American studies, colonialism and post-colonial studies, comparative liberation, theologies, critical race theory, Muslim American studies, Palestine studies, and of course he has a center on Islamophobia. Uh, Dr. Hatem is also the author of uh, several books. One of them is called Palestine. It is something colonial uh, and how to decolonize the mind. A very, very interesting book because there is a language that people need to use when they talk about uh, um, areas of conflict like uh, Palestine or uh, um about really uh, things that, that we go through on a daily basis. And I, he also has Erasing the Human, Collapse of the Post-Colonial World and Refugee Immigration Crisis. Good morning, Dr. Hatem. Always a pleasure to have you on True Talk. Uh, good morning and good to be with you. Good to reconnect. Alhamdulillah. I know you have been traveling uh, the past uh, few weeks, uh, posting very disturbing pictures about uh, dessert from <laughs> France. Allah samhak, Yani, I am on a diet and uh, seeing your posts, one would think, my gosh, this uh, professor who deals with very tough projects uh, and uh, issues is doing these uh, stories of desserts. But anyways, um, I really want to go back to the term Islamophobia because I know um, you do have a center, you do have even an app that has to do with Islamophobia. But um, where did this term come from? Who coined it? Uh, is it? Do you think it's the proper way to describe, later on we're going to define Islamophobia, but, but who came with it, with this um, term? Well, the uh, history of the term originates uh, in the early part of the 20th century. It emerges actually on the French context in writing about uh, the French engagement with Algeria and uh, North Africa and parts of the colonized uh, Muslim world uh, that the French were engaged in. 
And uh, the term that was being used, uh, Islamophobia in the French, and the early uh, definition or translation of this term is uh, having an inimical feeling toward Islam and Muslims. Uh, the French colonial project uh, was heavily invested uh, in attempting to transform and transfigure uh, Muslims away from Islam. And uh, the French continue to have this uh, attitude of civilizational mission. There's actually, there's French civilization and then there is everybody else. Uh, and as such, uh, in intervention in everything related to Islam and Muslims was the way uh, that Islamophobia came to be understood around 1910, 19, uh, 1910 period, early 20th century. In the more uh, contemporary period, uh, the term was reintroduced or at least uh, been uh, brought into circulation first by Edward Said uh, in his work both on uh, covering Islam, uh, Orientalism, uh, and uh, also the question of Palestine, which Edward Said uh, thought of these three books as a trilogy to be read in concurrently or in relations to uh, one another. People forget that uh, one of the early uh, writing on covering Islam in the media is actually the work of Edward Said covering Islam, mm -hmm. and then all of his work on uh, Orientalism, uh, cultural imperialism, and so on. So he introduced the term at, in, in a way to uh, compare uh, Islamophobia uh, to the presence of anti-Semitism in Western discourse. Uh, so Edward Said was using it in, in essence to try to draw uh, these comparisons of the long history uh, of uh, both the presence of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism that uh, really emerged from the same uh, type of uh, uh, Orientalist, Eurocentric uh, 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 writings and description. And then from that point, uh, the, the term began to uh, appear in various uh, research publication. And we could say that the uh, uh, Romney Trust report uh, in the UK uh, in the early 90s, uh, post-Cold uh, War, but also with the Rushdie affair, uh, brought the term into circulation within uh, the arena of public policy and academia. And from that point on, it becomes a term that is heavily researched and cited with both, uh, I would say, uh, people who have taken the term, define it and articulate it, but also a whole cast of distractors uh, who would actually try to debate the etymology of the term rather than the veracity of what it points to. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, uh, Islamophobia is an imperfect term that describes a very well-present phenomena, and no term is perfect. So, for example, uh, the same cadre of uh, uh, distractors, whether it's in the media or uh, actually some uh, within the uh, confines of Muslim space that are uncomfortable of using the term Islamophobia, uh, no term is uh, completely uh can have a one-to-one -one correspondence. Again, the description or the definition or attempt to understand 
uh, various concepts. It's how you define it and how you actually utilize it in research and description. And I'm always ready if people don't like Islamophobia, bigot will be also, you know, a welcome, racist will be welcomed and yeah. so on. So Islamophobia now is a term that is well established both in academia and also research circles in public policy. So it's like uh, we agree on, uh, on using the term and I think the UN also um, agreed to use the term and it, in a larger sense it means like fear of Muslims or Islam. But really to go back to what you had, like historically speaking, what is it other than being racist, other than think your culture is better than everybody's culture and talking about the French here, but what is it really that they think of Islam and Muslims that should require phobia and fear? What is it? Like we're, we're, we're bloody? Well, we're... Uh, but the thing is that in understanding uh, uh, discourses that otherwise people, uh, that's a long established uh, mechanism and strategy. Uh, in order to uh, conquer, in order to uh, pillage, in order to take uh, treasure and territory as well as uh, resources, uh, a whole process of demonizing, of otherizing, of literally uh, creating a monster construct that legitimizes uh, interventions, legitimize taking over resources, and uh, in essence, uh, making it possible that you don't deserve uh, the treasures, the lands, the territories, and the society that you have. That's been normative, uh, and in particular in the colonial discourses, been normative for the past 500 plus years. Uh, whether we speak about the Muslim world, whether we speak about the indigenous population in the Americas, we speak of Africa, it's not surprising that uh, Fran France is speaking about trying to help uh, the Francophone countries, and it's upset about what's happened in Niger or in the Francophone zone, the French, uh, in essence, heavily dependent economically, heavily dependent in terms of the financial in uh, financial institutions, in terms of their raw material resources, on the Francophone zones. Uh, without the Francophone zones, the 14 uh, countries that are in the post-colonial, the French, uh, in essence, would be the 15th, uh, possibly 18th largest economy in the world, rather than the being the fifth or the sixth. So that's the normative, in essence, uh, in terms of demonization. In relations to Islam, for European uh, powers, it's always been uh, this uh, uh, newly emerging uh, religious traditions, but more importantly, political, economic, social power uh, that uh, have presented a major challenge, uh, both to European powers, but also as modernity and uh, um, uh, the expansion of uh, colonial uh, discourses, uh, that it presented this major challenge. And also deep down, there is a sense of irredentism, which is, in essence, how did, quote, the uh, Christian West, again, we're speaking about the Christian West in relations to 
uh, Rome and the uh, Western Christian Church versus the Eastern Christian Church or the Copts or other parts of the uh, historical Christian tradition. In that sense, how did we lose all these territories to this uh, imposture that it was a, it's that comes out Islam? So there, this irredentism, this aspect of uh, loss have been intertwined into a claim of trying to rescue the uh, religious sites, but this claim of rescuing the religious side behind it is a deep, deep economic imperialist discourse that also can go back and date back to the uh, period of the Crusades, where uh, Pope Urban II, in his call for the Crusade, was deeply looking at economic issues, but it needed to be addressed in this religious uh, epistemological concept. So I would say this demonization of Muslims still uh, fits into that uh, long historical trajectory, and it's not an exception. I would say it's been the norm uh, among uh, European powers, and I would say that if you see how uh, the black subject has been demonized and continue to be demonized, uh, should uh, get us to understand the, util- the utility function of Islamophobia as a form of racism, as a form of demonization. So the problem is not in Muslims per se. The problem is in the construct of racist demonized discourse. Uh, In essence, I have to make you into a monster in order to legitimize your elimination and Mm -hmm. also taking over your uh, territory and resources. So that's at the core of what is uh, Islamophobia. So that requires, Professor, I assume... Uh, the production of uh, literature, production of policies, production of movies, of plays, of of material to make it uh, like more prevalent and to make the subjects, the people who maybe have never heard of Islam, um, to hate us or to agree on the policies that their governments are doing, whether Europe, like whether since Rome or uh, um, the past few days. Would you agree that they needed to manufacture maybe um, a literature to support their claim? Well, uh, uh, the production of material goes hand in hand with colonial imperialist projects, whether in the uh, uh, classical uh, period or in the contemporary period. Uh, How to produce a mass image, how to produce a mass uh, uh, media material that uh, could be internalized uh, by the popular. People are not born racist. They have to be educated to be racist. People are not born Islamophobic and fear of Muslims. They have to be induced into fearing Islam and Muslim. People are not made to fear the black subject. They have to be taught to actually fear the black subject. And that, in our contemporary period, is all done through uh, modes of uh, mass communication, uh, whether it's TV production, uh, the movie, and the impact of Hollywood as a uh, form of uh, constructing mass demonization. And I think the work of uh, professor, the late Professor Jack Shaheen, The Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Demonized the Arab Subject is very, very important. And last part 
in the last edition that he uh, put, he dealt with Islamophobia within his book. Within his book, uh, I think for those who work on uh, demonization and racism of the black subject, uh, W. D. Dubois. Uh, work is still monumental and important, Edward Said, in terms of Orientalism. So the uh, ideas that are constructed by those who are in uh, power and those who want to have a colonial imperialist and uh, contemporary colonial projects have to construct uh, this image to be mass-consumed in order to get the public buy-in into this project. And I think uh, this has been the, uh, the reality. And the other part of it is that we also get the sense of people beginning to internalize uh, this aspect. Uh, Muslims, again, begin to internalize Islamophobia. The black subject begins to internalize the racist construct. And this is, again, uh, the concept of double consciousness is a, a very important concept. So basically, I say you're a thief you begin to actually uh, try to respond by negating that you are or not a thief. Uh, that discourse results rather than being a debate or a discussion about who you are and your history, your identity, becomes a debate about the uh, uh, descriptive and adjective that I have assigned to you, which is a thief for the Muslims. It's the violent person. So. Uh, why you are violent? Well, you respond, I'm not violent. Islam is not violent. Islam is this. So it begins a whole series of discussions, not about you, but responding to the conflict that has been placed, uh, rather than anything, anything else of the essence of Muslim societies and the complexities of any human group. And the Muslims are a complex human group that is diverse and covers the full globe. If you're joining us just now, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. If you're listening to us um, on the podcast, well, you know what you're listening to. This is True Talk uh, with Ahmed and Sama. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Hatem Bezian. He is a lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley in Middle Eastern Languages, Cultures, and America, Asian American Studies, as well as the Executive Director of, Islam, of the Islamophobia Studies Center, um, also at Berkeley, and he's a professor at Zaytuna College. Uh, it's looking at, you know, in, uh, in reality, not just in theory, Islamophobia in practice. We see it every day in politics, in the media. We see it in the halls of Congress. Uh, there are uh, three, member, three Muslims in Congress, members of Congress, Ilhan Omar, Andre Carson, Rashida Tlaib, and we often hear and see uh, Islamophobia on display uh, in Congress. Now, many of, uh, there are more members of Congress that happen to be Jewish, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, Anti-Semitism is uh, big on the agenda of Congress, and they do a lot of funding to combat anti-Semitism, as they should. Uh, however, uh, at the same time, there's this Islamophobic campaign against the Muslim members of Congress by other politicians. Can can you one? Uh, I don't. <clears throat> is there a comparison between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? Are they kind of similar in that sense? And why the lopsidedness as far as so many re so much resources fighting anti-Semitism? 
while on the other hand, the very same people that care about anti-Semitism are actually, some of them are spewing Islamophobia or using Islamophobic tropes against members of Congress that are, happen to be Muslim. Uh, one is uh, in terms of uh, both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, uh, and setting aside the contemporary period of uh, uh, challenges as well as uh, tensions relative to uh, Israel and uh, uh, American Zionist Jewish support for Israel. The history of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, you could actually trace some of its origins and some of its uh, foundation to a con to a concurrent period. Uh, People forget that the uh, expulsion of Muslims and Jews, the what's called the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, the uh, Christian uh, at the time, those who called themselves Christians and defined Europe <clears throat> to be a European at the time, which is again a concept that had, can be challenged in terms of its uh, topography. You had to be white, uh, Christian that uh, it did not mix with Muslims and Jews, meaning that you did not have a mixer of blood uh, as it relates to this concept of purity of blood. And Muslims and Jews, in essence, were problematized, demonized, and you had a whole infrastructure of inquisition that uh, dealt with and uh, put many Muslims and Jews into uh, uh, you know, a process of uh, death and uh, demonization and eventually expulsion, as well as many of those who were called to be uh, unorthodox and engaged in sorcery and so on. In the contemporary period, the, uh, the Muslim world, especially post-Cold uh, War or the end of the Cold War uh, uh, in 1991, 92, uh, and that's where we begin to have this concept that is introduced on the clash of civilization, which is an idea that emerges initially from Bernard Lewis, uh, who was Orientalist per excellence, and then is picked up by Samuel Huntington in an article that he puts out in Foreign Affairs that later puts uh, uh, that later gets expanded into a full book. In Huntington's uh, writing, in page twenty of his book, he says literally says that we need to find an object of our hate in order for us to actually achieve or reach at self-love and consolidate who we are as a Western society. And it's not surprising that he uh, articulated that the object of hate is basically the Muslims uh, and also the Chinese. So you say the Sino-Islamic alliance that possibly constitute uh, this uh, threat. So from the end of the Cold War up to the current period, we've been uh, uh, stoked into a clash of civilization in order to achieve an internal cohesion in the Western society. And from that begins the concept in order for hate to be developed mm. within the Western discourse, you need to have it developed into systematic uh, demonization policies and so on, which gets us into why, again, anti-Semitism, rightly so, needs mm. to be challenged. It's actually seen as uh, something that is to be challenged and confronted. 
with a subtext in there that because Israel also has been uh, brought in into this alliance against the Muslim world and mm. articulating that Israel is a frontline state, it becomes that the Muslims, wherever they are, they need to be seen as uh, object of suspicion, demonization. So Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tulayb, Andrew Carson, in essence, are seen as a fifth column that they're really not true Americans. They really are trying to undermine the West because it fits into the clash of civilization narrative. And that's where mm -hmm. you get this process so, unfolding, whether it's Congress or other places. So the clash of civilization concept or theory that was developed, uh, it's, I guess, uh, you know, father uh, or, or started by Bernard Lewis and picked up by Samuel Huntington. In the 90s, Samuel Huntington, I think, you know, was writing about the clash of civilization. How did 9-11 play a role in, you know, I guess, impacting this narrative? Because that seems to play right into the clash of civilization playbook. Well, absolutely. I think 9-11 was the, uh, the moment, in essence, for those who have cut their teeth on a clash of civilization, on the demonization of Islam and Muslims, the, uh, the uh, claiming of Muslims as being this uh, violent uh, um, savages at the gates of civilization, 9-11 uh, becomes the exhibit A, B, and C in order for uh, the clash of civilization thesis to say, here it is, we could see it. And on the background, many of those who were uh, uh, at least deeply rooted in the uh, uh, clash of civilization Islamophobia were very well positioned. I think those who are what we call the neoconservatives, mm -hmm. the American Enterprise Institute, all these individuals uh, immediately mobilized and uh, ran almost ahead of uh, everyone else and uh, put the clash of civilization thesis into policy. So I would argue uh, that the current foreign policy uh, construct in the United States and uh, Western countries, as well as Muslim-majority states that are in alliance with the Western countries, have deeply accepted and uh, uh, mobilized the clash of civilization into policy. And there's no other place to read if you read uh, uh, the Patriot Act, if you read its articulation in other countries, most of Europe have translated the uh, uh, Patriot Act into policies and also parts of the Muslim world. Everybody have what you call this narrative of fighting the war on terrorism, which is an oxymoronic fighting a tactic rather than attempting to understand ideas. So this becomes the uh, clash of civilization writ large formulated into policies and practices that target the Muslim subject as a unique specimen that does not fit into the norms of civilization. And as such, all policies formulated on the international level and domestic level to deal with this threat. That's why we still have Guantanamo Bay. Mm. And that's why we have people that are outside of the law. That's why we had torture in Bagram Base, in Abu Ghraib, in prisons that both known and unknown were uh, individuals being renditions from one place to the other because they are not human because you in order to have human rights you have to be you have to be human muslims as a category has been 
classifies to be outside the norms of the law, outside of human subject. This is unique. If you think about the treatment of the Nazis who were responsible for killing 50 million plus, they were still accorded the right to actually face a court, to to, uh, go through the procedure, to be defended, and to be treated and dealt with as humans because they still even though that they were the quintessential violent, uh, uh, what you call concept and conceptualization, they were still seen as a human. While the Muslim subject in the contemporary period, I would argue it has much earlier genesis, uh, is outside the confines of the human. Uh, you could say that we're contingent to human. We're humans on, pro- on probation. Uh, with the possibility of possibly entering into the category of a human once you have that DNA marker that's called Islam removed from the subject, and that usually requires a civilizational chemotherapy in the sense of intervention, war, torture, and so on. I mean, just from what you're saying and from what I've read, that this Islamophobia, especially as it is, um, I guess, practiced in policy and in politics... It's not just because people are just afraid of some Muslims or they, you know, uh, don't know their religion or these are, you know, some foreigners, but that there's actual, actually a campaign behind this and it's rooted, some of which is in, in, in foreign policy, that they're following this uh, clash of civilization theory. Later on, some of uh, the most uh, prominent neocons started the project for the new American century that was signed by some 25 of the leading neocons, uh, 10 of whom or more went on to join and uh, were in the George W. Bush administration, including Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld and others. And I think Jeb Bush was was also one of those signers. And something significant, and I think it plays to what you were saying, that Samuel Huntington, Huntington said that we'd have to find a uh, someone to hate or you know that would be a target to unify uh, the west uh, similarly and i think correct me if i'm wrong in the new american century founding documents they said that they would need a, a new event like a pearl harbor type event to rally people and to be able to implement their campaign now when they actually signed this document i think it was in the when bill clinton was in power and they were didn't have any influence and they thought that this was a way to get back uh, in power, um, with the failure, you know, 20 years later, with the failure of uh, the neocon agenda, you know, they failed in Iraq, they failed in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is in, back in the hands of the Taliban. The world is less safe. There's more terrorism that's happening. Uh, how is it that yeah. Washington continues down this track of the clash of civilization and Islamophobic campaign? Yeah. Uh, one, I don't, uh, I, Maybe just to to uh, address the issue, I don't think that the agenda failed. Mm. I think the particular uh, uh, implementation of parts of the agenda failed. Okay, what do you mean? Uh, if meaning, if the uh, neocon and the neoconservative, the clash of civilization warrior, wanted uh, their agenda is to create a new enemy. And this new enemy to rationalize the outlay and the continued expansion of the military industrial complex in the United States and militarization of Western society, 
then I would say that the agenda in particular in relations to this has been successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Post-Cold War, there was a call for reducing the U.S. military budget. Uh, actually, uh, there was a call for what's called peace dividend, that now we ended the Cold War, two major powers. The Soviet Union had uh, thousands of uh, warheads directed at the U.S. The U.S. had nuclear warheads directed at Russia. So people were actually looking for a new world that war and uh, conflict and military uh, expenditure would actually be redirected to human needs. Mm-hmm. So in the sense of using militarism, military-industrial complex, expansion of the military budget. And I think this year, the U.S. military budget is $892 billion. Since 9-11, the United States have spent close to $9 trillion on war armament. That goes back to the military-industrial complex. We're still a war economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have 57% of the global trade in arms and armament. So in this sense, that agenda has succeeded. The second is that if you think about uh, uh, expanding U.S. footprint around the globe, the United States have uh, built, uh, now has operation, military operations in almost 35 to 40 percent of the world surface, including the development of uh, a central command in Africa, including the expansion of U.S. and NATO into most of Europe, which an outcome of that is the current war in Ukraine and Russia. It's it's a policy of expansion. So I don't see the particular mm-hmm. uh, uh, failure, distinctive failure in Iraq, in, uh, uh, in Afghanistan, in Syria, Libya. What can be looked on is that a collapsing of these states have actually expanded the reach of the U.S. outside of those territories. And now you have a, what you call a whole host of states that uh, uh, cannot emerge out of their status. For the next 30 years, you're dealing with destruction in Iraq, destruction in Syria, mm-hmm. destruction in Libya, destruction in Afghanistan. So from a neocon perspective, that agenda of militarization of the world is actually successful. The second, if we also are thinking of uh, this, uh, literally, I can't say other than just a, a, a war machine that is thinking of death and destruction as the policy, uh, then by expanding the footprint in areas where massive resources are present, in particular oil, a way to challenge the rising power of China economically, uh, the United States and its allies have uh, really articulated a way forward sitting on oil resources and sitting on the critical uh, modes or areas of uh, 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 transportations and areas where these resources move back and forth in order to have a uh, almost a, a military veto power over China. And I think that's also part of the strategy. So it's not all uh, to be thought in the narrow territorial. Again, uh, even the neocons and those who were in debate that uh, Iraq was a major, uh, what you call, uh, narrow construct on their part, maybe miscalculation. But I don't think that the uh, neocon uh, militarist agenda have failed, I would Mm. say that it had far more expansion 
even though uh, one could point to the failures in particular campaigns. Before I turn it back to Samar, just so, um, what you're saying is, uh, Dr. Bezian, that if the neocons' goal was to increase uh, the military-industrial complex, expand American military footprint, destabilize and create more failed states in the region, in order as a, to use it as a pretext to continue to exist and have those operations, then by that sense, they succeeded in their agenda. However, uh, going by their stated goals at the time, their public goals of spreading democracy and rebuilding Iraq and oh, creating that's those... The, that's the advertisement. Yeah, <laughs> and, and making a, a, this, a world safer, in that sense, it is not, you know, it, the area is not safe um, and there's no democracy in those regions. And so much, so much money has yeah, been, the, you know, taken, yeah. and 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 part of part of the, I think, one of the reasons why we have such a huge deficit is because of all the war spending. And you know, where did that money go? It went to all those uh, military uh, industrial complex. Sure, yeah. uh, and again, I differentiate between the marketing because okay. again, the neoconservatives did not go up say say, you know, we need to have multiple wars, we need to steal people's oil, we need even, you know, Trump, I agree with him sometimes where he says it's our oil, we need to take it. He's just as unvarnished in terms of his perspective because he's still in conversation with some of these uh, characters. So the advertisement for the product is different than the product itself. Mm. And as such, this promotion, the United States, uh, for all intents and purposes, have not embrace democracy in the global south. Right. Uh, democracy is not something, again, the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere, we never actually approach democracy unless it's the uh, person whom we want to be in there is a person that uh, is there. We have been responsible for more coups, for more overturning democratic elected governments and so on. So in this sense, the advertisement uh, use what you call uh, a promotion of democracy and so on, but the reality of the project is a militarist expansionist project, raw material, domination of raw material, domination of markets uh, through neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism that has been there. And for me, I would actually say that it's been successful as far as the agenda while also accounting for the particular failure. The second is loading debt uh, itself uh, from an from a uh, what you call a deeply uh, 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 held conceptualization as the can assist in reducing the uh, state outlay for uh, uh, public uh, support, whether education, healthcare, and so on, and thus create an internal crisis that requires for further expansion of militarism abroad, because we always will project on people that there is fear that we have to contend with. And then be behind this, that much of the debt that is right now on our books, which close to $33 trillion, it is also still going to that 1% that is part of our society. So not all that itself is not a problem for those uh, for 1%. And even in the past few years, since 2019, the top 1% have increased its wealth by over $800 billion, as many people are still don't have, um, uh, they don't make ends meet. So we also have to understand 
who is this debt is owed to, how is that is being financed, how to use public uh, 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 revenue, which is taxations and so on, as a way for uh, the rich to continue to actually expand their take from the public resources. So on the one hand, you have militarism, military-industrial complex. On the other hand, you have finance and the financial markets and the financial institutions that have massive amounts vested in actually uh, taking money through public debt where people don't actually have to risk being in the market in the same way because they have uh, almost their revenue guaranteed by lending this massive resources to uh, U.S. governments in particular. Summer. Let me just remind our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Hatem Bazian. He's a professor of uh, Asian Arabic Islamophobic studies at Berkeley University. He's also co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna uh, College. Actually, uh, Dr. Hatem, I was going to ask you a different question and uh, is related to what you're talking about. I wanted to talk about, for instance, the U.S. stand from the Algerian elections in the 80s and how they stood against what the people decided. Again, Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood Uh, coming to um, the uh, presidency through Morsi and uh, Islamic revolution in Iran. But we got a very interesting uh, uh, email, and I think uh, out of uh, courtesy, I should read it. And uh, it does have an important uh, point that this person, Ziggy, makes. So if you allow me to uh, read it, it's a little bit long, but uh, it's a segue that we need to talk about. And here is the email. You guys do a great job of exposing Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and Israeli suppression of Palestine. However, you are blind. Your blind spot appears to be oppression of women and general dissent by the Islamic states of Iran, Afghanistan, and others. In addition, I don't hear any railing against violent Islamic terrorism in Africa, Europe, and other places. I never hear any lament that extremists ruin things for everyone. You expect victims of Islamic terrorism to forgive, forget, and know the difference between good Muslims and bad ones. But you don't spend time trying to root out the bad apples in your community. Your own community. Your own community. WMNF spends inordinate time pointing out the bad right-wing apples in the mainstream African American community, but not about our own Islamic community. So what do you think uh, of such uh, people who make such statements? Well, uh, I would say they're very uh, well acquainted to Orientalist discourse. Not every question that is deeply racist, that is deeply quintessential in its Islamophobic, need to be answered. Uh, Since the events of 9-11, there's about 12 million Muslims that have been uh, put to slaughter and uh, killed. Um, And uh, as such, I will not answer any of these questions that are rooted in this uh, internalization of demonization of Muslims. What does that mean? Uh, Internalization of demonization of Muslims. Like a Muslim can feel, can internalize the hate against them and feel like... Well, a Muslim can, as well as the the general public, uh, have uh, internalized. So, for example, say, well... 
uh, Muslims are oppressive toward women. So we could we create a different category of Muslims relative to the treatment of women rather than thinking about the overall uh, uh, aspect of uh, gender dynamics and uh, uh, societies that have various elements relative to gender relations. So we tend to create the Muslim subject in the same way that we speak about, well, uh, anytime you talk about, let's say, a, a police shooting of a black person, uh, the smart aleck, like the person who just wrote this email, will say, how about crime, black on black violence? Mm -hmm. That's an internalization of the racist discourse. So in essence, rather than deal with the specificity of what is being said, we actually go and victimize the victim again. Re dealing with why is a police officer is almost four times more, like, more likely to shoot at a black subject, even when they're running away, rather than actually shooting at a black subject. That is the essence of internalization of racist discourse that would affect even, you know, somebody within the black community begins to speak about all the crime in the community rather than thinking of the causality. Again, another example. We speak about now the spread of opioid and uh, drugs in the streets, and we begin to demonize and uh, essentialize those who have become drug addicts in the streets. But you cannot have a drug addict in the street without a drug industry that pushed opioids since 1990, uh, since the late 1990, and made billions and billions of dollars by actually creating the drug uh, epidemic in, in the United States. When people speak, they rail around how our streets becoming dirty. Mm -hmm. But they don't actually make the connection that the reason that the streets are dirty is because uh, CVC, Walgreens, uh, Walmart, uh, uh, the Sacklers, all the pharmaceutical companies that pushed opioids and massively distributed in order to actually have massive amounts of profit. So this individual that asked the question would be more than happy to take a picture with the CEO and the board of directors of one of these, these corporations because they look clean, they dress with suits and ties, but they are as deeply uh, dirty. They're deeply what you call uh, 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 involved in the uncleanliness or the unclean streets. If anything, the unclean streets is symptom of the richness that the individuals who have marketed this on the American society. In the same way, when we mention about Afghanistan, we mention about Iraq, we mention about uh, Iran and so on, the reason that we have the current circumstances of that is because we had a whole involvement of uh, both colonialism, Western discourses, interventions, for the longest period that results in almost a structural the underdevelopment and structural undevelopment of these societies in order for the global north, Europe, the United States and so on to continue in their modes of development. For the individuals who is interested in this, I would say to look and examine your own society, to examine the structures that makes it possible for us to actually engage in the systematic oppression domestically as well as transnationally because we again are responsible uh, for the massive massive footprint uh, around the world both militarism as well as economic disorientation uh, that has not abated at least for so many uh, centuries if not 
uh, more so for the past 500 years. I would also say, uh, Dr. Hatim, that there is also a huge level of ignorance. For instance, uh, you know, because I'm a woman and I always lecture about women and Islam, People don't know what is written in the Quran. They don't know what is written in the other holy books when it comes to women. And, uh, you know, it's a very large subject, but also they don't understand that, uh, unfortunately, um, the U.S. supports authoritarian dictatorships in the Middle East and the Arab world. They know they are abusing their own subjects and uh, dehumanizing them, but uh, they give them money and they give them um, uh, the know-how, how to talk torture and how to kill and how to murder. They don't speak uh, up, I, um, you know, about them. But I hope people will read more and elaborate more. I think my co-host is telling me we are running out of time. Ahmed, are we? We have uh, one minute. Maybe Dr. Bazian just gives us, uh, you know, final thoughts. Uh, where is Islamophobia going and what? why should people care? Well, because uh, the demonization has an effect. Uh, it's actually... I said that we spent $8 trillion or $9 trillion. Every penny that was spent was actually mobilized through this uh, 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 construct of Islamophobia that makes it possible for people to actually let go of their health care, of education, of fixing the streets, the bridges, and so on, in order to uh, go after the uh, demonized subject. I say that Muslims today are the monster incorporated for the contemporary foreign policy and domestic discourses. So if your uh, car is broken, it must be a Muslim in the engine. You have a Muslim underneath your bed that is the monster incorporated. And in that sense, makes us both dumb and dumber in understanding the unfolding contemporary period that is in front of us. So it has a tremendous impact. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Hatem Bazian of um, University of California, Berkeley, lecturer there, as well as the executive director of the Center on Islamophobia, Islamophobia Studies and also a professor at Zaytuna College. Thank you for being with us, and uh, we hope to have you back on. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, summer after this, we have uh, NPR News. And um, after that, some more great programming. Uh, do, do you have anything interesting happening? Did you get your house all fixed and stuff? Of course not. Are you kidding me? It's still from the hurricane? The insurance doesn't want to pay anything. Okay. Yeah, I keep reading about insurance companies in Florida okay. failing, but... Um, this this continues to be a, a problem, I guess. Uh, insurance pay- companies don't want to pay the out. The windows cost uh, $30,000. I'm going to get another estimate to see if my, it might go to twenty nine. Do you know how much they want to pay us? $175 to fix the windows. All the windows? Yeah, 175 What is that, just to clean them or what? I have no clue. <laughs> I'm just so interested how many windows you actually have, but that's a different conversation because that's a lot of windows. windows. Are, are destroyed and they're on the ground. And okay, Summer, we're out of time. WMNF Tampa, NPR News is next. Have a great weekend, everyone. Uh, see you.